This is the safari. The relationship between design and our future. You might well wonder what the two have to do with the other. And our next guest, Dean Joel Towers, who until July 2019, for the last 10 years, was the executive dean of Parsons the School of Design in New York City. And he really, he made it his mission during that period to link how design designers of all shapes and sizes could think about the future of our planet and the world we live in uh, through the work that they do. And sustainability has become obviously one of the really important hot button topics today. Uh, Joel would say finally, because really he implemented many of the underpinnings of what is happening today through the curriculum of, of Parsons and the students that go through there. And it's really a wonderful honor to have him today with us to talk about the academic side of the industry, design in the boardroom, sustainability, the Anthropocene, as he will dive into many such fascinating topics. Let's get started. Dean Towers, I like saying that. Joel. I, I like hearing it. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this, uh, the safari. Uh, as you know, we are here interviewing many different people from different parts of our industry. And I couldn't think of anyone better to sort of look at the whole industry of design, of consumer products, through the lens of education, through those who actually design these products and, and help us market them. Uh, so give us, just tell us a little bit about your background, tell everyone who you are, and and, uh, and let's, let's start there. Well, first of all, Morty, it's a great pleasure to be here with you. I'm happy to be on the safari. In fact, I wouldn't mind being on a safari right now. It is uh, one of the great joys of my life being the Dean of Parsons, and um, I've been there at the school for now 15 years. Uh, I started as the first faculty member explicitly charged with looking at sustainability across the entirety of the curriculum at Parsons. And I think sometimes there's a misunderstanding of what Parsons is. Um, we have a brilliant history in, in fashion, but we were also the very first interior design program launched in the United States in 1906. And so the school has actually had a rich and diverse set of program offerings over the course of its now almost 125 years in existence. Um, and they range from everything from architecture, interior design, those areas, to fashion, to urban design, to product and industrial design. Uh, communication design, a whole set of technology degrees related to design, fine arts, photography. In other words, it's this very rich and diverse mixture, 36 different programs today at the undergraduate and graduate level. And so when you say sustainability across that entire curriculum, you're really talking about sustainability across the entire designed world. And I like to say, uh, my background is an architect. I started this work, uh, work um, after graduate school, I worked with a guy named Bill McDonough, uh, who was one of the very early uh, leaders in the green architecture movement. Uh, in the, uh, I was working in his office in 1990. And um, we were, at the time, uh, very early into the question of how do you bring sustainability to architecture? 
That has come slowly to some of the other fields, fashion design being one of the more recent to, um, to take this up. Uh, but over the course of those 30 years, what you've seen is a radical transformation of the ways in which design plays an important role in shifting everything that we do in society. And you know, you can argue that human imagination and endeavor have constantly been remaking the world. And the question before us today is the degree to which design can play a positive role in remaking the world towards a more sustainable and resilient future. And so in the case of Parsons, of course, it is part of the greater uh, new school. How do you feel that those programs that you talked about sort of have fit in with the message of the new school and social justice? And I mean, there's, a, there's obviously a, a, a simpatico between the progressive thoughts and, 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 and teachings of both schools. How, do, how have they intertwined, if or not, over the last uh, period? Yeah, well, you know, actually it was the new school that brought me uh, to Parsons, not the other way around, interestingly. I was running my architecture office. I was a faculty member at Columbia University. And the new school- That was 15 years ago now. It was 15 years ago. And the, the new school launched a search for, a faculty, for three faculty members, actually, who would focus on sustainability across the entirety of the university. I was the one hired for Parsons, but we were to work together in that space. And Columbia was really fascinating at the time. I was a lot of colleagues at the Earth Institute in Lamont Doherty. I was in the Graduate School of Architecture there. But the capacity to work across, to work in a collaborative, interdisciplinary way was really hampered by the structure of the school by the silos that are established through disciplines, through you know, past practice. And the new school, in its wisdom, was saying, no, no, this isn't what we would call today an intersectional problem. This is something that crosses over disciplines. It crosses over the ways in which society organizes itself into a kind of uh, narrower lanes that, that we don't cross over. And, uh, and we need to figure out how to work together to solve these kinds of wicked problems. And so the new school was actually at the forefront of understanding the challenges of sustainability and climate change 15 years ago. And um, the social justice question, I think, which is key to the new school, is really also just key to design. I mean, find me a designer who says, I'd like to do something that is unjust or makes people's lives worse or, you know, contributes to um, the the coarsening of our societies or the, the lack of social justice. I, I mean, I can't find somebody. Yeah, who wants, no one wants to do that, which is not to say that design doesn't, but that if you can combine the knowledge and the ambition around social justice with the capacity of design, you find a really rich and I think unique educational environment in which the, the depth of learning that occurs at a Parsons uh, studio combined with um, the sorts of commitments to and understanding of the way social systems work at the, uh, that comes out of the humanities and the social sciences really gives a rich understanding of the kind of change that we urgently need to make today. And in the New School, obviously, there are many professors that talk about and, and, and study uh, the role of, of, of gender and race, of sexuality within our society uh, and, and the changes that are happily happening uh, today. But but also, it was really interesting, I, I feel, when you think about a lecture that happened uh, with Marco Bizzari, the CEO of Gucci, 
um, on the occasion of uh, the, it was the travel lecture actually. I'm not plugging our own thing, but it turns out I am. Um, but the 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 lecture was all about uh, Gucci's rise and what they had done from a business perspective and married the left and the right brain uh, within their within their company. But two or three days prior to that, as you remember, there had been this um, fateful situation with the so named blackface sweater uh, that had been created by Gucci and, and, and marketed. And he had to deliver the trial lecture at Parsons, uh, at the new school, and discuss these things, which are were the confluence of social justice and fashion. Now, obviously, as you just said, this seems to happen all the time, but it wasn't as acutely visible as in that occasion, I think, to me ever. Um, how was your sense of, or maybe recount a little bit, you being at the epicenter of that lecture and, and how things uh, materialized within it and, and afterwards? Well, and I, I would add that it, it, it raises an additional question about higher education today, which is that a lot of lectures don't happen. And in fact, the Gucci lecture almost didn't happen. Uh, the, the incident, the use of um, what turns out to have been a really historically um, inappropriate design um, for Gucci to be presenting in the way that they did um, created a, a tremendous controversy internally within the university. And a lot of universities these days are shying away from controversy. Um, you see it all over the place. And that's not the new school. Um, we had our debates. Should we? Shouldn't we? Ultimately, you want to engage in conversation. You want to understand what happened. Um, and I found um, Marco Bazzari and Gucci in general to be really hungry for a kind of conversation and exchange. They, and Marco in particular, really owned up to what occurred. Um, I think he was also pushed by our students and by our colleagues and in our faculty. In fact, Kim Jenkins, who um, is a member of the Parsons faculty, joined with a group of students in a set of kind of Q&A with, uh, with Marco that um, I think really opened their eyes to the possibilities of what it could mean to, to learn from this experience. And they've since hired Kim to be working with them on a global level to be addressing the questions of, of race and um, nationality, which you know, I think in a lot of ways Gucci was somehow in the design room unaware of the meaning of of the symbolism of of what they were doing. So let's discuss that a little bit, yeah. Because I think that um, I think that if you think about some of the things he said, uh, he tried to um, make the case that Gucci, uh, with its uh, seat in I believe Rome, uh, was provincial potentially, and that um, we we in New York are spoiled for uh, cultural diversity, for awareness of, of such uh, global phenomena. Um, though I, I wonder whether or not um, he is correct or whether or not indeed um, we expect too much of the whole world. Uh, does everyone have to be so knowledgeable of everything? Is it even possible for everyone to know everything about everyone and not upset everybody? Look, I... To call Gucci provincial is um, rich. It's you know they're a global brand. I'm not sure he used that word, but I think I'm I'm paraphrasing. No, no, the, the, he he. Uh, look, 
Marco is a, is a, is a brilliant man and he's, he's presenting his case, brand yeah. and he's presenting his case and I wouldn't um, expect him to do anything other than that. But they're not a provincial term. They're not, they're not even an Italian brand. They're a global brand. They, yeah, have, I their, agree. they have their roots, certainly, um, in, in Italy and in Rome. Um, but just, you know, just the other day, you and I were uh, hanging out with uh, Tom Ford at the, the CFDA. And, you know, Tom had a lot to do with Gucci for a while there. And he's not Italian. Um, the history of that company is of that brand is such that you would expect any design room globally to understand the implications. And blackface is not just an American historical of course. Um, outrage. Uh, in the ways and that it was presented and and the racist nature of its history it dates back to to europe it does uh, specifically indeed. and so um i i think that was a little disingenuous but my but the part that was really genuine was a desire to figure out how do you go forward how do you learn uh, and look uh, design is always about pushing boundaries um i think they they uh probably did, weren't aware of the boundary they were pushing and i i would argue that um you know, in the absence of uh, what was going on in the United States politically at that moment, and I think I made this case that, you know, the, the uh, governor of, uh, what was it, South Carolina, I believe it was, or North Carolina. At the same time. At the same time is dealing with his uh, high school yearbook or his college yearbook um, in which he's uh, fully made out in, in uh, blackface. And so, you know, that I think that probably triggered more of a response to this in fact the gucci runway in which they debut that piece had happened seven or eight months beforehand and it hadn't been picked up in the media until what was going on in the u.s doesn't excuse it doesn't make it any more right um, it just says that we live in a media environment in which everything is global yeah so thank you for that i think let's move on to let's use some big big words you know, the, the, the Anthropocene is a term that you use a lot and has lots of meaning. And I think it means a word that means a lot to you. Define it for us yeah. and, and what it means to us in the future of the times that we live in. So the Anthropocene is both a terrible word for a very straightforward idea. And the idea is that the, there are a series of geological ages. They, they have evolved over the five billion year history of the planet. Um, and ages end and new ages begin. Uh, just ask the dinosaurs. You can't because their age ended and it ended in their extinction, um, largely having to do with a force outside of their control, a very large meteor that lands in Mexico basin. We as humans have all of our history uh, as, a, um, as a cultural species, not our biological history, but as a human culture um, the way we organize ourselves, the way we think about societies, nation states, all of the things farming that have been part of modern civilization have evolved over the course of the last 10 to 12,000 years since the end of the last ice age. Uh, I like to remind people that there weren't a billion people on earth until about 200 years ago, right? So in that entire period of time from the end of the last ice age until today, you have this very slow growth of the human species across the planet. Sometime around 150 years ago or so with the, the advent of the Industrial Revolution, when we start putting all this carbon dioxide into the air, we begin to change our environment. And what's happened over the course of that period of time is that we have literally 
alter the geological time in which we live. And so the Holocene, the previous geological age of relative stability, that is the end of the last ice age up until sometime in the last 100, 200 years, is the ecological age in which we have evolved. So our philosophy, our history, our forms of government, um, the way we think about the world is all in that period of time. And its relative stability and predictability has been very important to our success as a species um, and has allowed us to come up with ways of organizing ourselves and society differently across the planet, but nonetheless, um, in that era. But that era doesn't exist anymore. We are now living in the Anthropocene, and we're living in it precisely as a result of the success of the human species. So um, scientists look to identify that by markers. Uh, and um, one of those markers is the amount of carbon dioxide uh, in the atmosphere. Um, others are the uh, um, monoculture in seeds. That are, uh, there was a brilliant art article by Dan Barber this weekend uh, looking at the history of seeds and the way in which they impact the food supply. Um, others markers are things like the advent of the nuclear age, and so the ability to see radioactive material after the dropping of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs is one of those, and the whole period of testing, above-ground testing that led up to that and followed it as well. Those are identifiable by geologists. So they've got a big fight going on as to what's the marker, what's the year in which the Anthropocene starts and the Holocene ends. Does it, does it matter? doesn't matter at all. That's what geologists are doing. We, the rest of us who live in this world, have a very acute problem, and it's the dinosaur problem. So we are living in the Anthropocene, but we're thinking in the Holocene. We're still thinking in the past geological age. And when you're out of time, out of place, historically and geologically, you're at great risk. And so our species is at great risk today because we are living in one age and thinking in another. So isn't it quite ironic and interesting that while Parsons is obviously a 360-degree design school, we're very well known for our fashion program and the fashion industry is one of the great contributors to the, I guess, the Anthropocene as we know it and the issues that have been emitted from the time of humans. Are you hopeful that through the work that you've done over the last 10 years uh, as the dean, executive dean of Parsons, with every one of these, these students, I often say to people, you know, a thousand young minds graduate every year from Parsons who have at the core of their education in every single class been given sustainability as a foundation to their work. Um, are you hopeful that indeed we can, I guess we're not going to change much, but we can slow things down and we may be able to um, at least target the industry in which we so uh, often run our businesses uh, to be more uh, careful, more mindful to our planet and the times we live in, in in many different ways. Are you hopeful that we can change? I am. I am hopeful that we can change. In fact, I'm convinced that we will. Um, the challenge is that is precisely in this space between how we're thinking and where we're living. And so we have a set of systems in place that are slower and inconsistent with the time in which we live. And the challenge is, do we have 
enough time to make pretty radical shifts. So a couple of points that, to me at least, um, speak to the possibility. The first is, if you can have a 16-year-old Swedish girl from... Uh, yeah, she's remarkable. If, if Greta Thunberg can be able to raise the kind of alarm that she has overly and really in the past year, not even a full year, she starts her protest in August um, uh, in Sweden, in Stockholm, can be such a powerful voice, such a clear voice for the change that needs to be made. And you're focused really on dealing, working with young people, which is what we do at Parsons. Greta is only two years younger than our incoming students. And so um, I see tremendous hope in a generation that says, this is our future. It's actually our present. And so these changes have to be made. And you can see that in Juliana v. the United States, the case that's being brought by young people here um, because they are claiming that the government has failed to protect their rights to a safe and viable future. Um, and that case, which has worked its way through the courts, is proceeding. Uh, and so I see, I see incredible potential in the inspiration and the urgency uh, and the insistence of, of young people. I also believe very deeply that we know what we need to be doing. The technology here isn't the question, but that's a key difference from 30 years ago when I started this work where we could hope that technological transformations would be possible, but they really weren't fully developed yet. So the technologies around energy, transportation, um, production, uh, they, they're all uh, the, the questions of raw materials and, and I would say a place that we are not quite there yet, but in the biofabrication areas. Um, there's a tremendous amount of technological knowledge that is actually at the core of the Anthropocene. It is one of the great reasons that we have advanced as we have. So the real question is a social one. The technology is in place. Will we be willing to make the kinds of changes necessary, the disruptions to industry and the shifts? And here I actually see what uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has done working with Senator Markey and the Green New Deal as a really interesting moment. Because unlike, I was talking with a group of people earlier today about this, unlike the Waxman-Markey energy bill that fails in 2009 and in the first term of President Obama, the idea of a Green New Deal is intersectional. It addresses everything from climate, energy, to labor, and uh, the future of jobs, and agriculture, and connects all of the different pieces necessary to actually make change. It's kind of like a roadmap. It's not actually a piece of not a single piece of legislation. It's a roadmap, a kind of criteria for the future that we need to live up to. And so I see I think you start to see, I'm starting to see on the political front, on the technological front and in young people, the energy necessary to make the kind of change. And you see it in our students. I mean, this is the most amazing thing about it. Uh, 15 years since I became a faculty member at Parsons with the title of, of, of Director of Sustainable Design and Urban Ecology. Everyone said, what's that, when I first arrived? To today, where our students are graduating, and across the board, in every one of these industries, they are figuring out how to change them toward resilience, toward sustainability. Uh, and so companies that are really, in many ways, running at the risk 
of being unsustainable, um, being essentially out of time, are finding ways of building a circular economy. Um, we just, I, Eileen Fisher was at that same CFDA event that you and I were at. We honored her at Parsons just a couple of years ago for her work. You see these companies starting to make the changes that need to be made um, to make themselves profitable and sustainable. So, so what's the advice to a CEO of a company on the one hand, um, or even a voter who may not lean in this direction and, or seem to feel the urgency um, that others do, about how to think through some of these questions? And on the other hand, uh, the student who is um, potentially at Parsons today, who some would deem to be um, petulant and to be... Uh, too forceful and to be almost adolescent in their ways of dealing with people who don't really see the same side of this story as they do. Obviously, science is uh, fact, and therefore uh, that's one question that obviously makes some people furious to have to debate that. But nonetheless, there's a way to talk to each other. Um, so, on, so I guess it's two questions. The first being, how do you talk to the CEO who needs to understand Corporate, sustain, corporate social responsibility, um, and then to the young person who maybe needs to speak to the people they're trying to convince differently. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, again, it's like the same question of design, um, asking somebody whether they really care about social justice. I, personally, I think that most corporate CEOs do care about social justice. They'd like their companies to be doing the work that, that represents the brands and the and the position of those companies in a way that is benefiting the world. I, again, I don't I don't see most companies as being um, in a position where they'd like to do harm or feel like they should be doing harm. I, there are some exceptions. I would say fossil fuel right now is in a total state of denial uh, about the. They're a little bit like the cigarette companies were, where they they realize that their product there isn't a solution to their product. And so they're kind of arguing against the fact of science. Um, but for the most part, I think uh, corporations are not in the business of doing harm, quite the opposite. They are also in the business of doing good in the world and adding value. So I think you have to, to appeal to the, to the very nature of the corporation to begin with. And then I think uh, most CEOs are interested in the long-term viability of their company. Um, their challenge is how far out is the market? And they can't get too too far ahead of the market, right? That's always the language that's used. And if you're too far out there, you know you might you're ahead of your skis. Yeah, yeah you're you're out over your skis exactly. Um, and there, I think we're you know the thing about paradigm shifts is they happen really quickly when they happen, especially today. Yeah, and I think we are at the very precipice of a significant paradigm shift. Um, and the reason I say that is not just the polling that says where do people care about issues like climate and environment, but because the systems are starting to shift so rapidly because people are experiencing in their everyday lives the insecurities and the anxiety that are deeply connected to the changes in the environment. And so um, they may not align them politically. It may be inconvenient to use uh, a former politician's term for <laughs> the challenges that we face. Um, but, but that inconvenience is only because we have not, I think, found the You're void. You're referring to inconvenient truth. I, I am indeed. And, and while I think Al Gore was an imperfect messenger, he did a very good job of articulating the, the challenge that, has been, that we are facing. 
But I think what didn't happen and what hasn't happened to date is that a truly positive, transformative vision of what the world can be like in the Anthropocene, not the doom and gloom version, but the one that is about human species fulfilling their potential at this moment is what's been lacking in this discussion. And that's where the young people are so powerful because when you educate someone today, and, and Greta does a version of this too when she talks about her own life. She says, you know, if she lives to be 100, she'll, she will live into the uh, tw 20... It's hard to even fathom. I can't even, I can't. She, she gets to 03. 2101. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and, uh, and she talks about these moments in her life when she'd be 75, if she has kids, would they spend that day with her? And then she says, maybe they'll ask me about all of you. And what decisions did you make? when you had the chance to make change. And, and so this, this aligning of lives, we educate students today um, who will see the end of the century. Yeah, I think what's really interesting about all of this is where wisdom is coming from. Mm -hmm. um, in, even in business, and I've spoken about this on this podcast uh, a few weeks ago, the idea of um, reverse mentoring. Mm -hmm. Typically mentoring comes top down and now it's coming oftentimes even in this case with Greta, but also within business and industry and, and, and branding, it's the young people teaching the more senior uh, colleagues in their companies, including the CEOs, about digital marketing or whatever it may be. Uh, what's YouTube and what's a, <laughs> what's Instagram, et cetera, and how to use it, more importantly. But it's the same in this instance. But but there are dueling power structures. There's the there's the the young, the power of youth, sort of change, of, of a generational shift, uh, of a sense of ownership of the of the future, and then there are those who have the actual power on paper, uh, the politicians, the business people, etc. And it does seem as though people are talking past each other, um, both both sides of that equation. So how can we get them all to talk gracefully to each other versus being talked? over or at yeah um, i think it begins with an understanding and appreciation of the, the real anxieties that people are experiencing and i think that's happening not just in the united states though the particular politics at this moment seems so contentious here but you see that across europe you see it in latin america you see it in asia there the politics right now feels very tense um, very partisan and and divided um, again a, an indication i think of a of a moment uh, of change. And part of that is a reflection on what's being lost. Part of it is a kind of nostalgia for a simpler past. Again, I mean, we are living in a completely different age and people haven't fully woken up to that fact. They don't wake up, you know, they, the difference with a paradigm, a paradigm, the description of a paradigm is what you believe waking up. You wake up in the day, what do you believe? What are the things you don't ask yourself because you just believe them and know them to be true. Intrinsic. Yeah. A paradigm shift is when you wake up and the things that you thought you knew are somehow different. And, and our world is entirely different, but we have not all woken up to the fact that we're living in this new age. And so, um, and that can be very scary, very anxiety producing at some level, subconsciously, evenly, I think people know that the things that they grew up believing and knowing are no longer true. So if you're a farmer in the Midwest and you grew up with a certain understanding of weather and pattern and what you could expect, and all of a sudden 
these last years, this last decade, you start thinking about it, it hasn't been what you knew growing up. It's hotter, it's drier, the storms are more extreme, um, and it's causing you anxiety. It's causing you real stress in your business. Uh, and similarly, um, I think you see these patterns play out around the world in which things seem kind of out of balance. And so I think it begins by understanding that that is, an is extremely anxiety producing. We're also entering into an age in which our technology makes a great deal of the labor force from the standpoint of production and value and profit unnecessary. And the sooner that we also uh, um, address the fact that artificial intelligence, uh, machine learning, the capacities for um, uh, technological, technological production mean that there's a tremendous risk disruption going on in the ways in which we organize ourselves from a perspective of work. You know, I mean, in, I, I often say that a kid born today isn't going to learn to drive. It's kind of a, in an American context, that's crazy, right? You wouldn't, you wouldn't need a driver's license because you won't drive. But what does that mean to, to truckers, to, you know, anybody who's in the transportation? And these are massive disruptions. And so um, I think it begins by recognizing that, by talking about it. Uh, and and using that as an opportunity to say, what if we're not doing those things, what are we doing? So if there are a few CEOs listening to this conversation, what actions can they take to bring, on the one hand, sustainability, on the other hand, design itself, uh, and then obviously social justice wrapped up in all of that, into the boardroom? What can they actually do? What button can they press a decision to be made that can actually start the ball rolling within their company. Well, I thought Michael Praisman was pretty uh, eloquent about that at Parsons the other day when from Everlane, um, when he was talking about what does it take to be a truly transparent company? What does it take to be profitable, transparent? Radically transparent. Radically transparent, to use his language. Um, and, and that's happening in the boardroom, right? Very successful company, and he's saying, you know what, we're going, we're going to go out further because we believe that the future of our company demands this radical transparency. Our consumers want it. Our ethics point to the necessity of doing it. And we will be successful ultimately in the long run if we make these changes. So part of it is a CEO willing to push the button of leadership in speaking to their board. I also think that the nature of supply chains is changing rapidly. So in, in perhaps many of the people listening to this uh, podcast today, engage in global supply chains in one way or another. Well, those, those supply chains are becoming way more transparent than they ever were. So I use Rana Plaza as a critical juncture in that story, right? When Rana Plaza collapses, two things happen. One is there's this horrible loss of life, and it is immediately known around the world, the tragedy of what has occurred. And the second is, within probably half an hour, everybody knows which company is manufacturing their garments in that factory. And it spreads through the total media network, social media. Um, and all of a sudden, you can no longer hide. You can't hide your supply chain. And companies and consumers are making choices based on the transparency. Because that sunshine, that sunlight says, these are the choices that are right and you will lose your consumer base if you don't follow them. On the one hand, your supply chain can be a ticking time bomb. And on the other hand, actually, if you actually do it a good job, you can shine a spotlight on it and make it a marketing vehicle. In fact, at the World Retail Congress in Amsterdam a month ago, 
um, there was a lot of discussion about the optimization and full transparency of one supply chain can be a marketing tool. Absolutely. And herefore, to a brand marketer might not think about, oh, I'm going I'm to shine a light on my supply chain. It's a B2B unsexy thing. But today, potentially, it can provide you with an edge. Absolutely. So leadership, um, supply chain, what about, what about training? What can they do to um, help use, um, I'm, obviously there's Parsons, but there's many other institutions that one can turn to, to provide training and education intramurally within companies. How, how can this be distributed more effectively? You can talk about it in the boardroom all you want, but you've got to get it out there to your teams. Yeah. Well, you know, you mentioned the kind of reverse mentoring a little a little while ago, and actually Marco Bizzari, to go back to where we were speaking before, uh, is a great example of somebody who has articulated a, and built a strategy that enables him to be hearing from the, the broader and younger voices, both within Gucci and around Gucci. And I think that's a really important model. Um, and so one way for companies to make this change is to start to listen to the generations and particularly the younger generations that they have working within them. Um, and I think you, you do find a differently educated young person today in part because these issues unless they're being, um, for political reasons, driven out of the education system are happening at a younger and younger level. And so, you know, my kids, I have a, a soon to be senior in high school and a freshman in high school. Um, they've learned more about sustainability in their K through 12 education. And from their professor father. <laughs> <laughs> well, a little bit there too, but, um, but, the, but the, the truth is that it's in our educational system, despite the I agree. The deniers' efforts to write it out of it, and so, so it so, starts there. Yeah. So, so therefore, on leading on to that idea of reverse mentoring, what's the most important lesson that you've learned from students at Parsons during your tenure there? To never underestimate them. We have a tendency, I think, to put young people and their knowledge in a kind of you will learn and you and patronize them. And it's bit. very patronizing. It's we live in a patriarchal society. There are those of us trying to change that. Um, and, and so to not underestimate them, which is different than not educating them. And I think that's actually a very fine line right now because we have entered into, and this I would say is a, a dangerous phase of, of education to some degree, the consumerization, the commercialization of education, has created a very difficult space for educators to have knowledge that may be difficult to learn or hard to learn because the consumer wants something easier. It's unpopular. Or, yeah. It's unpopular. And, um, and increasingly in education, the, the comment is, well, I'm the consumer. I'm paying for this. So I, I, want, you know, I want something I like. And education is hard. Um, and indeed, one of the most important things in education is one needs to be vulnerable in order to learn. And uh, consumers don't like to be vulnerable. And so I, we're in a very delicate moment in education more broadly because I think the cultural shift towards it as a consumable good as opposed to a right and a, and a, and a part of democratic societies around the world is really at risk in this, in this moment. And I think, so I think the values of education really need to be reestablished. So the, the patronizing is one thing that we really need to be careful about. On the other hand, we should not lose 
what we know to be the value of education. And, um, and I think that, that middle ground is a very important space uh, to be focused on. And so carrying on on that theme, do you, did you have a memory, uh, uh, something that inspired you over the past 10 years or 15 years at Parsons, but 10 years as executive dean, um, a, a moment that sort of stands out as, you know, this gives me hope. I mean, there's something that you, a designer, a student, something that happened that, you know, s- sprang something in you? Yeah, there are a couple of couple of ones that really um, are markers for me over the course of this time. Um, one is a is a complex project that had probably two hundred students involved in it. The other is a single individual. The complex one was a project that we did um, in combination with one of our colleague sister schools at uh, at the new school, Milano, which is a management and policy school. And we entered into a competition to design a house um, as part of the Solar Decathlon. It's a project down in Washington. It used to be down in Washington, D.C. It's not happening down there anymore. And the challenge of that project was once every two years, Department of Energy would select uh, 20 schools from across the world who would be given a small amount of money. Um, then they had to go out and raise a bunch of money on their own to build a net energy positive house meaning a house that would create more energy than it uses. And um, we entered that competition. And um, it was an amazing experience to watch these students over two years um, design, build, transport that house down to Washington, D.C. But what was really compelling about it is that we decided to approach it from a social justice perspective. And so rather than build a house and ship it there and then ship it back, which, by the way, the carbon footprint would be crazy on anyway, we partnered with Habitat for Humanity in Washington, D.C. and built a net energy positive house um, and taught Habitat how to do that at their prices. And so they've gone on to build more houses based on the knowledge that they acquired in working with us. And we built a second house with them, and then they've gone on to do more. That project demonstrated for me the fact that universities can work more than semester to semester. We can, in fact, work over multiple years, and we can really make change in the world. Very exciting project. The other, more recently, was one of our graduates, Lucy Jones, um, who- I thought you were going to say that. Who, uh, in a totally different space, right? So it's not coming from the sustainability perspective, though she did work with Eileen Fisher uh, for some time after graduation, who looks at the challenge of being a fashion designer and um, is asked to figure out how to make a real impact in the world and decides to focus her work on people with disabilities, in particular the seated body in a wheelchair, and goes through the design process of understanding the challenges of that and how to make clothing and garments that are both beautiful and functional for those individuals becomes the designer of the year at Parsons. You know, I mean, it's hard to even imagine the radical shift that it was for Lucy to win designer of the year that year and goes on to be really transforming the ways in which we think about what it means to be a fashion designer. And so these two stories of an individual and a group in both in their ways provide me with a tremendous amount of optimism about what can happen when design plays a leading role in transforming the world. She told me the other day that um, she's looking to 
sponsor or be part of the Invictus Games. So if anyone from the royal household is listening to this, which is unlikely but possible, you know, call call Lucy up. Call she, Lucy she, she wants to she, she wants to help. Um, so leading into our last question, um, it's been really wonderful speaking to you. In the age of the freelancer, the entrepreneur, um, how do we make sure that design students are leaving their education, uh, oftentimes investing their own money or their family's money into their businesses or their agencies or whatever it may be? How can we be sure, and maybe you have some confidence that this is indeed changing. It's not, not a Parsons thing necessarily. I think it's just a design education question. Um, do you feel... Uh, that everyone's getting the right tools as they leave and what can we do better uh, as mentors as an industry to make sure that young people are not a scared not scared of accounting not scared of banking uh, actually um, you know lean in when when wanting to use that side of the brain because it's a different discipline but when it's awakened and you use both sides of your brain that's when the alchemy happens so what you, what's your take on on that so for a last question, that's a big, broad, a nice, not, juicy one for you. Naughty question. Um, I look. I think there are a couple of things. Um, the first is that one of the time when people talk about design thinking, you know, this term that I think has been radically overused and and in some ways has come to represent, you know, putting some post-it notes up on a on a wall. Um, what really is being discussed is the methodology of innovation and creativity. And one of the things about the posture of a designer toward the world around her is that it requires of them, in order to be successful, an openness to new knowledge over time. That's actually one of the critical aspects of, of being a successful designer. And if we can teach them anything, we teach them to be reflective, to be um, questioning, to be open, um, to challenge assumptions, to question the paradigm. And so that aspect of the education is highly valuable in a rapidly changing entrepreneurial context. We don't know the particular knowledge skills they will need in the future. I think it would be the height of hubris for us to suggest we can predict that, but we can prepare them to be, um, to take on a posture of learning throughout their lives. So that's the first fundamental piece of it. The second is that when you talk to them about ecology, you're also talking to them about economy. And the two words are, from an etymological perspective, linked, and both of which come out of essentially the managing of the of the home, of the household. And so um, that requires of our students to understand that business is not some abstract, separate, um, you know, the other people do that and we make creativity, but that these two things are inherently linked. And so it is requiring of us that we teach them more math, or at least and openness to the realities of economics and business. And the question is, how do you teach that in a way that's not alienating to them? And how do you teach them ultimately collaboration? Because I think the, rad the radical proposition of the Anthropocene, and if you think about it from the human species, is that we are not an individualized species. We are in fact a collaborative species. Our great strength is in our communities, in our collaboration. Um, it's a misunderstanding of it's a it's a bastardization of Darwin to think of the survival of the fittest as the survival of an individual. It's actually about the community. And so designers for a long time, and our Parsons is guilty of this as well, 
have held up the star, the individual, as the great model of success. In the Anthropocene, it's the community that is the model of success. It's the collaborative environment. And I think um, that alone, that shift, suggests to students that who they work with, how they reach out, how they build a team to address the complex challenge in front of them is at the core of being successful. A great thank you to university professor Joel Towers for doing the safari today. He truly is one of the most inspirational thinkers in our industry. I want to take a second to explain to you why Traub is able to bring you the safari. We pride ourselves in being at the very center of a very global, very complicated consumer and retail landscape. And in our travels, as we help think, manage and expand businesses in many different channels and geographies, we're able to meet and learn from some of the great minds in this industry and it's really wonderful to be able to bring them to you. If you want to learn a little bit more about Traub, you can go to traub.io where you'll learn a lot about everything that we do. Please do share this with uh, colleagues and friends in the industry and obviously like it and subscribe. Thank you. Until next time.